Welcome to the Confident Money Podcast, where we talk money, finances, and accounting for real people without all the technical jargon, patronizing, and gatekeeping. I'm your host, Caitlin Magnuson, and I'm going to be your new finance bestie. Welcome back to our last episode in this mini season with Kyle Seagraves, talking all things mortgages, home loans, and the market. Kyle is a certified mortgage advisor, licensed loan originator, and the owner of Win the House You Love, a YouTube channel with over 100,000 subscribers. Kyle, we have an interesting market right now. I think we've had an interesting market for a while, and we're watching things change, I think, fairly rapidly. So I know that a lot of people have compared what we're sort of entering into or had worries about like, will the housing market crash? Will we see what happened in 2008? And I want to just really dive right into, you know, what are some of the differences between what the market looked like in 2008 versus what you're seeing right now? Sure. Well, first, I think it's helpful to understand why is there so many of these questions around real estate? I know we throw around the word appreciation a lot, and I think sometimes people don't maybe fully understand what appreciation is. So buying a house is interesting in that it's a place that you want to have a nice backyard. You want to have a nice place to live. You might want to have a home office. You need a, a nice place for your cat or whatever. Like It's a place that you're going to live and enjoy. On the other hand, though, it's also what's called an appreciating asset in that you get to buy the house either with cash or take out a loan on it. But the home value over a period of time historically actually increases in value. And when it increases in value, uh, it appreciates. That's that's what that's called. So the historic appreciation over the past around 50 years is around 4% per year. So every single year, it goes up by 4%. And then the next year, another 4% on that value. And then 4% on that value. And over the past couple of years, we've seen a pretty strong growth in appreciation. Um, somewhere closer to like 18 to 20% uh, kind of depends on different markets, but 20% growth year over year, meaning that if you bought a home for a hundred thousand, it now is worth 120. If you bought one for 200, it's now worth 240. So this crazy growth that's happening, that's causing people to kind of get in reality, not be able to afford homes as they continue to, to increase. And so this is something that we saw similarly, we saw this kind of price growth before the 2008 housing crash. And so this has led a lot of people to start feeling like, oh my gosh, we've seen this before. The last time this amount of crazy growth happened, everything fell out and there were job losses and people lost a ton of money in retirement accounts. People lost their homes. They got foreclosed on and it caused this big financial shift that took a long time for people to recover in. And it's a little bit of one of those things of we're just looking at one number. We're just looking at price growth and then correlating them with, well, it crashed one time with price growth. And so now it's going to crash again with price growth as well. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, what happened in kind of around 2006-ish is you had a, <laughs> a financial market that was not ideal. People were making really bad loans, really bad mortgages. And then going off and selling those to other people for a premium and they're risky. And, and basically it set up the entire economy uh, in a state where it was just a house of cards. All it took was one thing falling apart for the whole thing to bottom out. And really a big culprit here was predatory lending practices. So things like uh, stated income loans where you used to be, just be able to say, yeah, I make $100,000 and they would let you get approved for a loan for that. Now you actually have to prove 
with quite a bit of documentation that you actually make that kind of money. Or things like adjustable rate loans, where it might be fixed for a period of time and then adjusts after that. So there are people who they could qualify on the lower rate of the adjustable rate mortgage. But then after that rate expired, their payment shot up because interest rates went up and now they couldn't afford the payment and had to foreclose. Now, that mortgage world is completely different than what we have now. After that caused a huge, like rippling effects throughout not only the US economy, but the world economy, then there were a lot of safeguards put in place to say, we're going to have to tighten down how secure these mortgages are. And that's why if you go through the mortgage process now, it's kind of confusing and overwhelming and a little bit terrifying because so much of the information that you provide gets checked and verified through rules like ATR, which is the ability to repay, meaning the, the lender has an obligation to make sure you can actually pay back this mortgage over the likelihood of the time that you're going to have the mortgage. So the fundamental like loans that are being put out are completely different here. So then the big question is like, okay, well, why are we seeing these price rises? We saw the price rises then because access to debt was so easy and it was so easy to get into a home. And because you could do that and you had people basically saying, well, I can write down whatever income. And then the interest rate is really low. The payment's really low. I can afford that. Home values go up because people are like, of course I can afford this million dollar house because the interest rate in the beginning is super low and I can afford the monthly payment and that's it. But that wasn't the reality of the situation. Right now, what we're seeing is a fundamentally different change in why there's appreciation. So there's home growth appreciating both in you know, 2006 and now, but there's a different reasons why. The reason why we have such an intense growth right now really goes back to the basic equation of supply and demand, which is there are a lot of people looking for homes, really high demand, but really low supply of homes. And that's why home prices have increased, but I don't see the shaky financial fundamentals beneath like there was in 2006 to 2008. I think the big difference um, that I've seen as a buyer, because I bought in 2010, I bought a foreclosed home and I know that there had already been some changes to the industry at that time, but it's just, it's wild. I mean, we had, I'm 32, we had what the dot-com burst in the very early 2000s and then we had that big recession in, you know, what, 2006 to 2010-ish, give or take. And so I think so many people now that have lived through that, that were kind of of millennial or Gen X age even, keep waiting because in our history, our, you know, which is so short, historically, we've seen home prices drop. You know, they hit a peak, they drop, and everyone's just sort of waiting with bated breath to be able to, you know, buy the dip, so to speak. And from everything that I've been reading and everything that you just talked about, and for a lot of the reasons that you stated, it doesn't seem like we're going to see some big, you know, plummet in home values for a lot of different reasons. And so I think like you've talked about, there is an opportunity cost to an extent to not getting into the market sooner. And especially with home values continuing to appreciate, um, mm -hmm. whether they continue to appreciate at the same pace or not, they're still normally an appreciating thing for you to be owning versus like yeah. buying a car or something that in normal terms normally would depreciate. Um, right. Cars are normally, you know, a depreciating asset. However, the last, what, year and a half, two years, we have seen that kind of flipped on its head, which has been wild. Yeah. I never thought I'd see the day where you could buy a car and sell it a year or two later for more than you purchased it, but you know? Right. Yeah. I, 
keeps me on my toes. So I think when people are talking recession and we're seeing, you know, some changes, especially with inflation and with the stock market and there's, you know, uncertainty, I think that one of the areas that we can kind of be certain will continue to appreciate maybe at a slower rate would be homes. And so I think for a lot of people that are waiting to buy the dip, and Kyle, I think you would agree with this. If it's something that you're able to afford and you feel confident about making the move, I don't think continuing to wait for a year, two years, three years is going to benefit many people financially in the long run right now. Yeah. And if if it helps anybody, like I'm buying a house, like I'm closing uh, on the 17th. And I wouldn't be doing that if I thought everything is going to fall apart, right? Um, yeah, and and you know, we saw this in 2020 as well when when the beginning of kind of the steeper increase in home appreciation happened, where people were like, "There's no way this is sustainable. Um, I am I'm going to wait." And they waited out two years, and now they can't buy a house. The house that they were looking at buying has now increased by forty, fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars over that period of time, which is. <laughs> insane like I have, a, I have a friend of mine he bought a, a home here for 130 and within three years uh, he just sold it with a cash offer for 280 hey if you're enjoying the show make sure you subscribe and join our community at confidentmoneypodcast.com where we share resources and all of the money happenings Plus, you can send feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. That's confidentmoneypodcast.com. Okay, back to the show. And so like you're seeing just crazy appreciation. And this isn't in every single market, but so far the people who have tried to wait out things haven't seen very much of a return. And you know, what's, what's really interesting too is thinking through like not only what are individuals doing, but what are the people who have a ton of money doing? So what are all these investment firms doing? What are like local investors doing? And they're buying, right? Like you have these huge companies purchasing up more and more and more residential homes, homes that first time home buyers should be getting. Corporations are going out and saying, we will absolutely pay the premium for it. If they're putting billions of dollars into investing into primary you know, uh, single family homes, they feel like they're going to earn money on that. And what they're doing is they're going to turn those into rentals because uh, they know the demand is going to continue increasing and they can make more r- money renting than they can just selling it. But you know, this it's a really interesting from the psychology perspective. There's a, a really big channel on YouTube um, that's grown a lot quite recently. And a lot of the narrative is around this like housing crash is going to happen. And this person's been talking about a housing crash for the past two years. So at some point, you're going to be right if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. I'm more in the stance of like, I don't know. We don't know what the future looks like. But what's interesting is this person keeps talking about a housing crash, but his underlying business model is, I will show you cities to purchase investment homes in, right? It's scare first-time home buyers so investors can come in. And People don't realize what they're being told. They think they're the main audience. They're the, and so, but they're getting scared out of buying. So it's easier for investors to come in. It's, it's a pretty like insidious <laughs> model when you actually look at it. And this is happening a ton where I keep seeing people, they talk about it because it triggers the, that like fight or flight in us. It triggers fear. And, you know, money is such a, a core emotional thing to us. And we've talked quite a bit about like managing 
some of the emotions that come up and the thoughts that we have around money. Um, but like people will really play on these things. But then when you actually look at what are they actually believing about this? It's none of it. Like I was on that person's website the other day and I saw one of their testimonials that they have highlighted on the homepage. You know, the whole channel is dedicated to like housing is going to crash. You shouldn't buy a home. And right there on the homepage of the website is a testimonial saying, thanks so much. You helped me. I wasn't sure, but I, after talking with you, I felt, cause he does consultations after talking with you, I felt confident moving forward and buying my first home. <laughs> so right, right. to get oh the views, God. to get the attraction, I'm going to talk about housing crash. But when I actually do consulting with you, I'm going to suggest that you buy. It is wild. Yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> wild. And that's also on anyone that's consuming content, right? I think in this day and age, and this is kind of, you know, a tangent, right? But I think in this day and age, when you're consuming content, I think it's so worthwhile to do your due diligence. Like, how are they making their money? Is there a vested interest? Is there a bias? It's, mm -hmm. there, there's going to always be something, but it's just, are you aware of that? Can you take that in, into consideration? And then make sure that you're looking at whatever information you're consuming through that lens, understanding that someone's probably trying to sell you something or provide information. And like, yes, there's free content. All of us put free content out, but we're also putting free content out and running a business. So like there, there's a purpose for us being in business. And I think being mm -hmm. aware of that and not just hopping in and being like, oh, I'm not going to buy a house. And then, yeah, making your money off of kind of the antithesis of that is is wild. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too, Kyle, though, with the discussion of like, we don't have a crystal ball, right? Something completely unrelated that we're not like, we didn't predict COVID necessarily. I mean, some people would say that they did, but like, we didn't expect it to have the wide lasting impact that it's had. There could always be something. Um, there's always risk that goes along, I think, with any investment that we make, with any choice, with any big decision, leaving a job, changing career paths. Um, and I think it's just, are you comfortable yeah. with that risk that you're taking? And for me, yeah. a market will normally recover over five to 10 years. If I'm yeah. looking or I could comfortably stay somewhere that I'm looking to buy for five to 10 years, I have a lot less of an issue with buying. And in the meantime, I'm at least paying my loan down. So even if I had to leave and I had a little bit of a less of a profit than I'd planned on, the hope would be that I could still get out of it without having to bring money to close. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a great point because I think for a lot of people, the, the trauma kind of comes from the 2008 housing crash when we actually did see a big decline in um, home values. But you can Google right now, FRED, F-R-E-D, uh, it's Federal Reserve's economic data. I think that's what this stands for. Um, okay. So Google FRED median home price, and you can see what the median home prices have been in the U.S. historically. And if you look at uh, 2008 home prices right before things dropped out, if you bought a home at the height of home prices right before that crash, home prices would have declined and then they would have gone back up. So they declined for about three years and then went back up over the next three. If you waited six years, you would not have lost any money. You would have broke even the home, same home for 400,000 would then sell again for 400,000 in six years where you lose money is actually when you end up selling. What happens is people get scared because the price drops and then they think, Oh my gosh, I got to get out before it goes too low. And it kind of is the classic, uh, investment saying, which is like, don't try to catch a falling knife. Like you're going to get hurt on the way down. Uh, like we, we don't actually lose the money until we sell it. And to be fair, like there's tons of other things going on. People are losing jobs, being laid right. off, like all these other economic impacts, which is why we talk a lot about, you know, having an emergency fund and not buying something all the way at the top of our budget or going with a 30 year mortgage instead of a 15. 
all these extra layers of risk protection and management that we can add in there. But we've only had in the past, I think, 100 years, I might have, might have been more than that, about three drops in home prices. Two of them only were, it took three years to have a dip in recovery, where if you bought at the height, waited three years, and then sold, you would not have lost any money. You would have broke even. 2008 was six years. Uh, and then I think we had one more, I can't remember which data it was, but it was three years. But it will, you can see it in like the FRED data, that little chart dips down. You'll see it's three right. years, six years, three years. And so for me, that gives me a lot of confidence because I had that fear of buying too, where I was like, man, well, what if you know home prices are growing a lot? And we're seeing data that shows us there's, it looks like we're flipping into a buyer's market where buyers have more control. But just because there's a buyer's market does not mean prices go down. It just means prices begin to stabilize a little bit more. Going down is actually pretty extreme and isn't super common historically. And so for me, it gave me a lot of confidence. It was like, even in a market where there was like predatory lending that we now have safeguards that don't exist anymore, that was six years. If home prices decrease, can I stay in my home for six years? I'm pretty sure that I can do that if I need to. So I just don't see... I know it's really like salacious and these headlines are so like they really trigger that thing. I just don't see any data that actually would show me like things are going to bottom out and it's going to cause a huge problem. I think if we're going to run into problems, it's going to be larger economically and not just specific to the housing the home, market yeah, and yeah. larger economic problems. We're all screwed if those happen anyway. Yeah. Right. Is that really going to be your biggest concern? Well, and Kyle, I know we talked about, but you reminded me with, we see that happen with stocks, right? Or investments. So many people pulled out during the collapse, you know, in 2008, give or take somewhere around there mm -hmm. for the same thing, right? They're like, oh God, I want to pull it out because what if it gets worse? Whereas for a lot, and again, there are caveats yeah. to this, right? Like if you were of retirement age, if you were dr actively drawing on that money, there are a few, very, very few. And even then I still think holding it would have been beneficial. But for some people, that is the only money that they had. For a lot of us that yeah. were under the age of you know, needing to use that in the next 10 years, it showed that the people that had withdrawn their money, I was reading a study, I don't know, a couple of years ago about it, but it had showed that if they had just left it there and the people that did leave it there, the funds had fully recovered. God, I want to say, I think it was in six years, six or seven years, like yeah. fully recovered and actually exceeded prior values. And so instead, and we were talking about how you don't actually lock in the loss until you cash your funds out, you take your money yeah. out. Same thing. You also don't lock in that, you know, gain or that appreciation or that return on investment until you cash out. But it's still you're yeah. cashing out like one of the worst possible times if you can afford to just hang in there, like let it yeah. sit, check your funds less often. Uh, that's something that like I was reading in the psychological hit that you take when you watch your investment value decrease is so much stronger than the you know psychological feel good when you see it have an uptick. And so mm -hmm. some really common advice that I stand by is to not check your investments more than once a quarter if they're kind of on like an auto auto invest, yeah. auto, you know, rebalancing because you're in it for the long haul anyways. So should we really be checking it regularly? Should we be looking at it all the time? Yeah. And I look at it for the most part with, at least with my primary house, um, very much the same way. I'm, it's an investment. It's a medium to long-term investment. The value of the house will fluctuate over the next few years. Am I comfortable weathering those dips? Yes. 
Yeah, it's like the the amount that you check it needs to correlate with the timeline of investing. If your timeline for investing is yes. twenty years, then you should. Why are you checking every day? The daily changes don't matter at all. Yeah, <laughs> you can control them anyway. So if if you ever needed to make decisions about things, okay, those decisions can actually over a twenty year span, you could make twenty decisions about your finances. That's even that is quite a bit to be moving money around for long term investing, uh, and that's just checking it once a year. Even if you pull it back to checking it once a quarter, like that's still checking in on on your money eighty times and potentially changing it. Like that's that's a lot to move money around for a long term investment. And so, yeah, why are we checking? No, and I think it's such a human thing to see it and to want to tinker with it, right? You you get in there and you're like, oh, I'm just gonna no, just leave it alone, leave it alone. And that's, I, I think so much of that yeah. is we do the same thing with buying a house. We do the same thing with making big life decisions, right? And there's a time and a place, right? You want to make sure your finances check out. You want to make sure that you've, you know, crossed your T's and dotted your I's, but part of it, and it's not like the sexy part of money, but so much of it is just consistency over time. You know, same yeah. thing, like as you're investing, cool, let's pick an amount that we feel good with. Let's regularly invest. Let's pick our house and let's, you know, get a strategy for our loan that works with our financial goals and just day in and day out. You're just, it's. Everyone wants like a quick fix or get, you know, get rich quick scheme. And sure, people can have windfalls and get lucky and all of these, but like so much of it for the majority of us, you're going to be so much better off if if you just stick with it and you're consistent and a little bit boring when it comes to your finances yeah. and it comes to paying your loans down. Yes, absolutely. You know what? One thing I, I did want to circle back to kind of the, a little bit of the fear of the housing market stuff a little bit that just kind of popped in my mind. What's interesting about kind of the, the headlines or a lot of the content around housing market crash stuff. What I've realized, and you know, because I primarily make content about home buying, is it's done a really big disservice to home buyers. And a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, this like fundamental education side, even about, okay, how are we investing money along with saving for buying a house? And how are we looking at our budgeting? These topics aren't being addressed. And I think it's actually, it is a disservice to home buyers who want and need to understand a lot of these fundamental things about their money and buying a home and what their plan is for the future, because it's all being captured by just the like kind of more clickbaity titles. And it's really disappointing because like, for me, I've kind of taken the stance of like, people deserve to know all these fundamentals, no matter what the market is like, whether it's easy or difficult. People still need to understand how an appraisal works, how to solve issues when it comes in low, how much their down payment is, how to save money in the best way possible. And it's interesting that we're so addicted to like, I want to keep hearing about the thing. Like the good news is we already know buying a home is tough and the market is tough. Like we already know that. So why do we keep hearing it over and over again? The next best thing to do is like, since we already know the market is tough, what are the plans that we can take beyond that? What can I actually do that's like tangible? Can I start the next step of creating an emergency fund? The next step of paying off credit card debt, of finding a side hustle or finding a way to raise my income by getting a raise. Like what are the actual tangible steps I can take? Learning about the buying process, feeling more confident about the money that I have uh, rather than just hearing the same thing over and over again. Well, I think understanding what you need to have too, because I think like you've identified so many times people think they need so much more money or they need a higher credit score or they need something. So like having an action plan laid out can make you feel, I think, so much less hopeless because I see it all over TikTok, all over the news. We all do all over Instagram, you know, 
it's just woe is me and it's clickbaity. And like, yeah, it's tough. It absolutely can be depending on your market, your personal financial situation, your goals, your student loans, like everything you have going. But it feels at least for me a lot better to be taking action towards something that's my goal. Like buying a house was my goal. I would want to be able to take action towards making that happen. For me, for years, it was job hopping so I could bump my income up. It was nailing, you know, a great W-2 to help qualify. Like all of these things made it an easier process. Yes. Yeah. The sensationalism of the market is kind of old news. <laughs> like you hear it once and you've kind of heard it already. Is that how that saying goes? How's that saying go? Uh, like you don't need to keep hearing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, it's like, well, okay, what can we do? And, and a lot of that is really kind of just fully embracing the reality of the situation. I think for a lot of finance, people are either afraid of the reality of their situation or just the external situation. And they kind of get paralyzed by it mm -hmm. and saying, well, the market is tough, so I can't do anything. Yeah, but what's within your control to do? Like, okay, the market is tough. All right, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to sit and just be paralyzed by it and expect that some change to change me? Or are there things that I can do within my control? And maybe you're like, you know what? I can't buy a house with these prices. I can't save for a down payment that quick. Okay, well, there's so much more that we can do to become more healthy financially mm -hmm. rather than just buying a home that's not the pinnacle of financial success right right so it's like okay well what's within our control is that a goal we still want to work towards in the future and are there other things that you can set up in your finances in the meantime if you're not able to move forward with buying a house at the moment i think too and i'm not a huge proponent of just find a cheaper place to live Great. That might be an option for some people. Right. But it's also then potentially raising values in the air. Like we've seen that happen here in the Boise area. Right. Our market is like, no. I think they said it was 70% overinflated or something absolutely ridiculous, especially for the average cost of living here. I think so many of us, and I think I've encountered this a lot. I don't know if you have, but being a woman in her now early thirties, there have been a lot of expectations pushed on me, having kids, mm. getting a house, you know, doing the yeah. very standard domestic thing. And I think for a lot of us, unpacking what's expected of us versus what we actually want is something that we should all be doing, especially before making large purchases like buying a house. Because I know a couple of people that have bought that it wasn't for them. They'd way rather rent. They'd way rather have uh, an RV and travel part of the year and then have yeah. that as their you know home base. But if it's something that you want, Maybe that does mean you job hop. Maybe it does mean you look for a more affordable area that meets what your earning you know, potential is. Or I don't know your thoughts on this, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Or you look to do some sort of, you know, co-housing setup or buy an apartment complex with some people where you could actually, like, there's, you know, there, there's options. I think that getting mm -hmm. creative, especially if you're, you're in a high cost of living area, but also just taking action every day. Are you applying for jobs that have higher pay? Are you looking for jobs that have the same pay that have fewer working hours? Like there are things that you can be doing to increase your earning potential and improve your financial situation while moving you towards whatever your goals are. Yes, absolutely. Because like, unfortunately, the, the environment around us, our external environment is not going to just change to make it easier to buy. And yeah. I think that's what a lot of people are holding on to is that like, if I just sit here, then everything is going to change. It's going to be easier. And I just don't really like to live my life in that way <laughs> because I just haven't found that to be true. Um, right. Like there absolutely are, are tons of things in my life that it, like have been gifted and are like 
I feel like I'm in a very privileged position, but at the same time, I can't just sit back and expect that everything is going to be handed to me. And so it's like, well, what is within my control to actually create? The first job I had, I would not be able to afford the house that I'm buying currently if I had that. So I, I said, I knew in that position, like, okay, I need to spend the next five years working towards getting an income and building a business that actually allows me to pay for a specific lifestyle that I want. Um, and I, I think that is true for, especially in people in higher cost areas of living where it's like, yeah, the, those markets are probably aren't going to decline. Um, and even if they do, they're still going to be really hard to (laughs) access. And if that's where you want to stay, like, okay, great. But we have to figure out what's, what can actually change, uh, in those situations. And I think you, you nailed it too, with like figuring out what do I actually want? A friend of mine who who bought the like 130 house mm-hmm. that's now worth like 280 or they just sold it for 280 they have like a, a decent size amount of land that's like an, an acre or two just enough to feel a little more private mm-hmm. and they kind of did the thing where it's like oh what everyone expects of us the next home we would need to get it needs to be bigger and better more land and more money and they were the house they were looking at was about half a million and then they they came back afterwards and were like after they looked at it and we're like, oh, we don't actually want that. Like we, this is what everyone else wanted for us. Mm-hmm. And they kept saying, oh, it'd be nicer when you can afford an even more land or you know, all these other things. And then they were like, what we actually realized we wanted is a smaller house and we want to live downtown. We didn't want to have the land with a bigger house with all the things. We wanted little space, living closer to people yeah. that's much more affordable. Even though they could afford the half a million, they're like, well, we want to go buy another house that's for 170. Um, and so it, it's just interesting to see that when you actually do come back in alignment with like, what do mm-hmm. I actually want? No, and I, I don't think that happens enough. I think so many of us just kind of blindly hop from one societal, familial, you know, friend expectation to the next without stopping to think. And I think with the high cost of living areas, there are also ways that you can, you know, modify what you want. Cool. You want that, you know, three bedroom penthouse in wherever. Why don't we start with a studio that you can buy? Why don't we start like, where, where can you start? Where can you get, you know, two millimeters of the way towards what you want to be doing? Because I, I've been guilty of this for sure. Being like, well, I want this, but Mm -hmm. my budget is like a 10th of this. (laughs) Where can we start? Where can it be appreciating? Where can we just be also figuring out if that's what we want, if we want to be living in that area, if we like that lifestyle, yeah. if we like that type of house, because where I live and the property that we have and the chores that go along with it and the maintenance and the upkeep are not everyone's dream. Some people don't want to have to maintain a yard and have outside chores probably every other day that have to be done or they just build up. But for other people, that's, you know, they wouldn't want to do anything else and they'd feel stifled in a city. Yeah. the And the one is so much sexier in our head than it is in reality. <laughs> because I mean, yes. remember, think about the last time that you were like, oh, I really wanted something. And then you finally got it. And that was exciting for maybe like a week, maybe, maybe even like a few months or a year. And now it's kind of like, oh yeah, that was, I'm kind of done with that. And I moved on. I, I think the same thing can happen with housing too, is like a lot of people like want to joke about uh, you know, Dayton, Ohio, like that's where I live. It's like a smaller metro area, but I really like it. It's a fantastic speed for me. And it's only an hour drive from two even bigger cities. And the cost of living is super low that I can 
go travel wherever I want to. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people like I would try those things first of how can you get the little snippets of the lifestyle that you want without actually having to live there. Like for instance, I, I like big cities. I like going to big cities and exploring them. And so I thought, well, if I like big cities, I need to live in a big city. And I thought that for so long. And then, uh, I've had, you know, obviously been to cities and like spent time in them Mm -hmm. for a little bit. And I remember like a couple months ago, I went on a trip, uh, to, uh, even Cincinnati, like not even a huge city, but stayed the night there. And then after a few days, I was like, I'm done. I don't want to interact with any more people. I like, I'm out of this. I cannot. And I remember thinking like, I can't imagine if I moved there Mm -hmm. with this thought and then regretted it because it was actually too much because what I like, I like being able to visit cities. Yeah. I don't like living directly in (laughs) the city. And maybe the opposite is true. Like maybe it's like, I like having more space around me. Okay. Are there activities that we can do in the place that you live that's affordable for you that you can experience those more? It doesn't have to be, I don't have to live in the thing that I like all the Mm -hmm. time, right? Like I like going, like California is one of my favorite places. I don't have to live there to enjoy it. Right. Living here affords me to be able to go there kind of as much as I want to. Well, and probably have a better quality of life overall. Yeah. Too. I think you're not having to feel stressed. Yeah. Yeah. Because the opposite would be like my housing would be so expensive there (laughs) that I wouldn't be able to go anywhere else. Exactly. You'd be stuck in the place that you like to visit and then it kind of can sour, I think, your your feelings towards it. I feel very much the same way. When we travel, I have zero issues staying in the city. Like I want to be walking distance, you know, get out, do all the things, live in the apartments above all the shops. I think it's great on vacation. By about two Mm -hmm. or three weeks in and the third weekend of partying until two or three a.m. or later if you're in Europe and it's like 6 a.m. and everyone's wandering home and I'm over it and I'm craving like the silence and the solitude and to not yeah. see another human being for like three more weeks. But it is, it's nice. Yeah. It keeps it special for me to go do that. And I think figuring out which environment you thrive in better or which environment you thrive in that allows you to have the most balanced or well-rounded life for you. Which, like you said, you can still go do all the things because you have a moderate cost of living with the majority of the amenities that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of an underlying theme of this episode a lot has been really kind of just accepting what is. You know, we, we might want to be somewhere else, uh, whether that's financially or the, with the house that we live in or whatever that is like. But the reality of the situation might not align with what we want. And that's okay. Like we can work towards that. But it doesn't mean that we can't also find enjoyment with where we're at or saying like, you know what? I'm not where I want to be. Maybe financially, I'm not where I want to be. Relationally, I'm not where I want to be. But I can make steps every day to work towards the things that I want and can still find contentment here. Because if the contentment and joy is always pushed out into the moment in the future, and we do this all the time, whether it's, well, I need to get engaged and I need to get married, then I need to have kids, or it's, I need to have uh, this house. I need to have the dream house. Like we're always pushing the joy into the future. You'll never, even when you get that thing, be able to experience joy because it's always going to be, well, there was actually one other thing I could add on to that to make me happy. So we can work towards the things that we want, but also be able to find happiness and joy in working towards what we want in the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And contentment and gratitude and being okay with the dichotomy of wanting to change your circumstances, but also 
appreciating where you are now, where you've come from and what you have accessible to you at this current point in time, I think is so important because we've all done it. We've all blown past that, hit those goals, exceeded everything. And it's just, it's boring now. It's not exciting. We've done it. We've been there. What's the next thing? What's the, we see it in business a lot. I think too. Oh, I hit a hundred thousand. Well, now it's a quarter million. Well, now it's 500. Are you actually doing what you want to be doing? Like, do you have a business that you like running? Is it running your life? Like why, why are we doing it? Is it just vanity metrics? And we do the same thing in our lives. Like, are we buying like your friends who, I mean, kudos to them for taking the time to acknowledge that they didn't want the bigger house, the bigger property, the bigger responsibilities and taking what some would see as a step back, but is really a step, you know, into their more ideal lifestyle. And that's amazing. I mean, I think so many of us need to just pause and think and unpack all the shit that we've learned or been told and just do what we want to do. And I think so, like, I think it, it can be hard because people will, and I think it goes back to what you said too, Kyle. And I, I don't know, two episodes ago, like don't involve everyone in your personal decisions right? Like get the facts, decide what, and I mean, this goes for so many things, but like become educated. If you're not already educated and knowledgeable in whatever you're looking to do, sit with it, make the decision that feels good for you. And then cool. Notify the people that like need to be notified, but live your own life. You're not, you're not out here like being a sponge soaking in everyone else's opinions and ideal lifestyles because you're going to end up with a life that yeah. doesn't look like yours. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Okay. Well, Kyle, since this is our last episode in the season, it's in the notes, but can you remind everyone where they can find you and learn more about the home buying process and loans and everything that we've chatted here, but in a much deeper and more fleshed out level? Yes, absolutely. I have over 270 videos on home buying on my YouTube channel uh, called Win the House You Love. And it's not a raffle. You're not going to, I'm not going to, you don't enter anything. I'm not going to give you a house. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I forget that it seems that way. Um, kind of the premise behind when the house you love is like, Hey, first of all, we don't have to buy the dream house. We can just buy the house that we love at the moment. Um, and then also you're competing against other home buyers. And that's why it's important to arm yourself with the truth about your situation and having more understanding of home buying, because the more knowledgeable you are about your situation and about home buying, how that works, how the mortgage process works, how you can put in a better offer, the more likely you'll be able to win the home that you want, the home that you love at that moment against other buyers who want the same house that you do. So win the house you love on YouTube, or you can go to win the house you um, I have a couple extra resources there as well. I love that. Okay. Kyle, thank you again. Go give Kyle a follow, a subscribe, a subscribe on YouTube, subscribe, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah subscribe, <laughs> like follow, subscribe, do all the things over on Kyle's <laughs> YouTube because he has a wealth of information. So Thank you. And we will chat with everyone next week. If you loved this episode, make sure to leave a five-star review for a chance to win a free financial strategy session with yours truly, Caitlin Magnuson. We do the drawing the first week of every month and to be eligible, you'll want to leave a five-star review and include your IG handle so we can contact the winner. I'll see you next time where we'll chat real finances for real people.